city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax of the state of Virginia, Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh, Tawana Brawley, Crystal Magnum. What do all these people and cases have in common? They all dealt with sexual assaults and allegations of sexual assaults. Some were new. Others were many years old. So the questions we want to discuss in today's show on a thread of evidence are why the late reporting? How does a forensic investigator determine a credible reporting party from a questionable or incredible reporting party? And I think no one could be better placed in our conversation today than my friend and professional colleague on our forensic death investigations team, licensed clinical psychologist and private investigator, Dr. Joni Johnston. So welcome back to the show, Joni, and I thought you and I could sort of have a highbrow conversation on forensic investigations with respect to sexual assaults, and how do we get to the real truth of that matter? I'm glad to be here, Ron, and this is certainly a topic that is very timely, I think. Well, let, let's start just kind of going down the road. Uh, what would you, how would you like to start with this thing, Joni? Is, is it, uh, you want to talk about late reporting, or how, how do you want to go into this subject today? I think that is really a great way to begin, because probably the number one question that people have in these situations is, why do women or men, but in this situation, we're talking primarily about women, why would anyone wait so long to come forward, number one? And number two, what does this mean about this person's credibility? So when you ask survivors of sexual assault, women who have reported, women who have not, um, why would why would you wait? Why did you not report? I could spend the rest of this hour, Ron, talking about the, th- the, the answers that I hear. First of all, a lot of women who have been victims of sexual assault blame themselves, particularly if it involves somebody that they know. So they do what we all do in certain situations. They do some Monday morning quarterbacking and they start saying, I should have known. Maybe there were red flags. I shouldn't have had a couple of drinks. I shouldn't have been alone with this person. I should have, should or should or shouldn't have. So they do that. Um, they, of course, there's a huge fear that women won't be believed or men. They're afraid of retaliation. I have several, have had worked with several victims who said, look, the cost benefit ratio is not here. I want to forget about it and get on with my life. I have no desire to sit, to sit in the courtroom and have to look this person in the face and re- recount all these details that have happened to me, um, knowing that statistically the odds are this person will not get convicted. Um, in sexual harassment cases, this might surprise you, Ron. I've heard plenty of people say, look, I just want the behavior to stop. I don't want to get that person in trouble. So when you talk about this delay in reporting, does it mean the person is credible? Not necessarily, but it doesn't mean the person is not, not credible because there are a lot of reasons, some more valid than others, why people don't speak up sooner. 
Well, you know, I, I appreciate that. And you know what? Let me, let me just tell our audience a little bit about you, Joni. Uh, you are a professor of graduate studies in forensic psychology. Uh, you write a blog for Psychology Today, and you're a regular contributor to True Crime. You've been doing this for many, many years. You have hundreds of psychological evaluations under your belt. You are actually diagnostic because you got a PSYD after your name. And so you're just a well of information and have so many things in your wheelhouse. So with that introduction, let me ask you this question. If the women are, and I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate with you, because I, first of all, let me just say, I don't disagree with one word that you've said, but let me just kind of play devil's advocate. And if the women do not want to uh, get in deep after an allegation. They don't want to go to court. They don't want to go through the criminal investigations aspect. They just want to get on with their lives. Why do these allegations resurface 10, 15, 20, 30 or more years later? And that's just a great question. I think the answer absolutely will depend upon the case. Um, in the situation of Brent Kavanaugh, for example, here's somebody who felt like, in her words at least, that here's somebody who's getting ready to be nominated for the Supreme Court, and that even though she had told her therapist that somebody had done something to her, she felt like at that point she had to go to somebody, and she went to Diane Feinstein at first and said, hey, I need to report, my conscience is bothering me, to, this is a person who I don't believe has the character of someone who should be on the Supreme Court. Okay. So that's that situation. Okay, and and we know we now know that Diane Feinstein had that information but made a political decision instead of a decision for the benefit of the reporting party who was Dr. Ford not to report this for several months. Absolutely. And unfortunately, as you've alluded to, a lot of these cases do become political. And that absolutely distracts and interrupts any kind of forensic investigation. It so, just becomes a completely different animal. Oh, absolutely. I, I agree entirely. So how do we, as investigators, how do we get involved in a methodology, an investigative methodology, where we try to determine who is credible and who is not? Well, certainly you can speak to the physical evidence part of things, you know, after right after a sexual assault um, has been reported. But when you're talking about a situation where some time has gone by, it is tricky. And I do think, and I will say this, Ron, that that's going to have to change because if victims of sexual assault wait to come forward, they are going to pay a price in terms of the likelihood that that case can be pursued. Once there's no physical evidence, once time has elapsed, it becomes much more difficult, and you know this, to, to prosecute or to really substantiate claims. But no, Go ahead. You know what I was going to say, Joni, and, and as a person that was a sexual assault investigator and have dealt with, uh, you know, the emotional, psychological trauma of these victims, when there is no forensic evidence because the reporting has been so late, I mean, we can't get anything. We can't do DNA. There's a lot of, you know, investigative things that normally we would get in trace evidence and things. All those things are gone, and it just makes the investigative process so much more traumatic for real victims. It absolutely does. And it also increases the likelihood that that case is going to be unfounded, which as we know is very different from necessarily being false. 
Uh, but it certainly can be something the prosecutor says, hey, you don't have enough evidence. I can't do anything with this. Well, you know, let's bring up those two terms. And why don't you define those for the audience so they understand the difference between a founded, not sustained, unfounded, uh, you know, complaint? So when we talk about a false complaint, it's pretty much we're saying this is a lie. This is a person who had a malicious intent. This person had a motive to harm the accused in some way or to gain something in some way, sympathy, an alibi, revenge, whatever. Um, And so this person deliberately made up facts that were not true. Okay. And so as investigators, you know, our advocacy is for the collection and uh, facts and, and forensic evidence. And we use that in our support of victims. And I think sometimes the advocacy gets a little bit messed up. Uh, and I've talked about this before, and I think you and I have shared a conversation uh, about this, where they think an advocacy is for victims. They even say there are victim advocates. Now, victim advocates aren't investigators, okay? Well, investigators need to investigate, and if the evidence and everything that we can put together forensically supports the allegations of the victim, that is where that advocacy comes in. It gets very difficult for the investigator as well as the victim when the report, albeit 100% true, is so lately reported. It, it absolutely does. It just it just muddies the water. And so in that situation, what do we do? We look for corroborating evidence. So in all the har- sexual harassment investigations I've done, for example, we look, we, you know, we interview the person who's making the accusations. Then we interview the person who has been accused. We ask each particular person, who should I talk to and why? What information is that person, do you think, going to be able to offer me that's going to move this particular investigation forward? We look at text messages. We look at emails. It's not uncommon for me to talk to somebody who's waited a significant amount of time to come forward uh, and report it formally. But I, I will say in my experience, Ron, it is pretty uncommon for that person not to have told somebody Right. I you know, maybe you. it's a spouse, maybe it's a minister, maybe it's a friend, but it is unlikely for that person not to have told somebody. So we have to kind of go back sometimes and create this, try to put this puzzle together that's very difficult because the pieces have now been scattered and look at the totality of the evidence. Um, another thing that we can do is have that person recounting that experience. We know that there is a lot of research on how the brain responds to trauma. And when we look and we can compare that victim's um, account, we can look and kind of think, okay, based on what we know about the, uh, you know, how the brain responds to trauma, how, how the brain under trauma encodes memories, is, is this person's account, and this is particularly applicable, Ron, in a situation where the question is, is this consensual sex or is this, you know, an assault, we can look and, and as part of the puzzle, not the entire puzzle, but look at, is this person's account consistent with sexual assault? Yeah, you know, and, and maybe you can help me with this, because when I was going through my forensic psych and uh, sexual assault training, they talked about VTS or victim trauma syndrome. And that's a real psychological roller coaster, uh, not only through trauma, but for what we refer to as stress recall memory. And, you know, not to get into the, you know, law enforcement issues that you and I have talked about before, which are like officer involved shootings and, and things like that. But I do 
I, I do find that there are interesting parallels between the victims of sexual assault and officers that are involved in traumatic events with regards to stress recall memory. As a matter of fact, because of the research that's been done uh, in, in sexual assaults and teaching investigators how to better investigate sexual assaults even when the reporting is late we grabbed a lot of good information on how we forensically interview officers after an officer involved shooting and and you're absolutely right this issue of how our brain reacts to trauma and how that affects memory is not specific to sexual trauma correct it's specific to trauma in general. Correct. And it's and that information has been extremely useful in talking about police op to, to police officers who've been involved in a traumatic event, to combat veterans who've been involved in traumatic events. And it really has helped, I think, a lot of not only investigators, but treaters know how to approach and help that person. Yeah. You know, for instance, like it, uh, for, for an officer involved shooting, uh, we now don't in uh, we don't get into intense forensic interviews with our police officers until about after three days after the event because what we've learned is about if, if you interview them and we're talking about a significant interview not a walkthrough or, or something like that but with the with uh, if you interview them within the first 24 hours they only remember about 25% accurately of what happened and after 48 hours they they get about 50% and about Three days later, they can do 75, 80, 90 percent. And a lot of that information that we gained, again, was in regards to the research that's been done with sexual assaults. So, for instance, when I would handle a sexual assault, I would, you know, after we went through the, you know, the SART process, the sexual assault response team process, and I would begin to do an interview, I would be very, very easy with my victim. And what I would always have them do, and I used to keep these steno pads, and I would give them a steno pad, and I would attach a pen to it with a with a piece of, uh, of uh, thread so that they wouldn't lose the pen. And I said, you know what, just keep this by your bedside, because something's going to happen 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden you're going to remember something. And I need you to write those notes down in that pad, because I understood that the women were going through some stress recall memory. Is that pretty consistent with what, what you teach and what you learn? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so glad that you're talking about this for a couple of reasons. Number one, we know that sleep, particularly after trauma, helps helps consolidate memories. And so if investigators will have a shorter interview with that victim um, the first day within 24 hours and then wait, right. um, that it does absolutely increase recall. And the other thing that you mentioned, which is so heartening to hear, is just the fact that this, these open-ended questions, I mean, if you look at the victim-perpetrator dynamics of sexual assault, you see that there are two kind of two themes. One is this lack of control in the situation and this disconnection. Um, individuals often report being treated as objects to, so to the extent that in the limited you know, availability of an investigative interview, to the extent that you can give that person some choices, a sense of control, show compassion, which doesn't always mean I'm believing everything you're saying. It's just saying, I'm concerned for you as a human being. That is going to dramatically increase the chances that person will be able to tell you and give you the information that they have. 
Boy, you know, and that's so important for investigators to learn how to do that properly because, as we know, sexual predators, they have an M.O., uh, you know, you've got your, you know, control rapist, your power rapist, your sadistic rapist. There's all different types of, of uh, sexual assailants out there, but they tend to pretty much stay with their M.O. As long as it's successful, they'll stay with that M.O. So when you have, for instance, like a series of women coming forward, even if they're late reporters, and those women have not heard the other reports by the other women, and investigators are interviewing them, that MO will come out, okay? E even though there's, you know, four or five women at, at, at different, you know, the temporal relationship, in other words, the timing of when the alleged sexual assaults occur, even though they could be years apart, the, the assailant, if he's successful, hasn't been caught yet, he tends to do the same things. He'll even say the same things to women. W would you agree? I absolutely would agree. I definitely would agree. And I think that, you know, those interviewing techniques are absolutely critical. Um, also, I think, and this can be kind of confusing, is understanding what things not to evaluate when we're talking about credibility. So, for example, one of the things I've heard over and over again is, you know, that person just didn't act like a sexual assault victim. I don't believe that person because she didn't, she wasn't upset enough. Um, and I think that's something that we, we have to realize and kind of go, okay, I might want to, as part of the investigation, talk about how that person has handled other stressful events in that person's life to get a baseline of how that person typically responds to upsetting events or even trauma. But there is no expected or right way to respond to a sexual assault. Boy, I'm so glad you brought that up because I have a current case, and obviously I'm not going to say where it is or, or anything like that, but that's exactly the point. And I was brought in, matter of fact, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't brought in as a criminal investigator. I was actually brought in on, on a civil case, but it uh, dealt with a forcible sexual assault, okay? An armed person sexually assaulted a woman who was a senior citizen. And I read the report of this sexual assault, and it was like three paragraphs, Joni. And in the third paragraph, you know, instead of pages and pages <laughs> like you and I are used to doing, it was like three paragraphs. And when I read the third paragraph by the officer who was not an investigator, he's just a, a field officer, it was a credibility determination that because the victim in this case didn't look like she was very upset, but she reported it immediately, he really didn't think it happened. Yeah. And I came in, I think four or five, and by the way, the case was dropped uh, because there wasn't any information in the case. I think what happened is the, the officer that investigated made a faulty determination as to whether the victim was, was credible or not, and then didn't go into anything more. And I got that case four months later, and I sat down with that woman. I had a two-hour, I had a wonderful two-hour conversation with her, and I managed to pull all sorts of things out of that investigation, a complete description of the person, what he was wearing, what his voice sounded like. I mean, some special things that an investigator would really need. And I found that, I found that victim to be 100% credible. And better yet, I found that if they properly investigated that case, they could catch that guy. So that all speaks to the fact that investigators have got to have good training and they can't, you know, assume anything.
That's right. And, and that training, I think, serves not just the purpose, Ron, of helping police officers officers and investigators find out the truth and build a better case if the case is warranted. But they also help, uh, you know, they really do have a critical role in helping that person deal with the trauma afterwards. One of the things that astounded me, my first job out of graduate school was as was working with sexual assault uh, survivors, children, families that have been court ordered into treatment. And this was just a really difficult uh, job in some ways because I just saw some horrendous uh, cases. But one of the things I did see is, especially when we're talking about children, is that the way a parent responded when that child came forward had an incredible influence on that child's recovery. Meaning if that parent believed that child from the very beginning, stood by that child, reported it, got the child into treatment, it was amazing how much, how far that went into helping that child start to heal. Where the flip side of that is if you had a parent who didn't believe the child, discounted it, you're lying, you're making this up, what did you do to deserve it? It was that secondary trauma was just absolutely debilitating for that child. Well, and I think the, true, the same is true for adults in a different way. Oh, absolutely. Jody, can we continue this conversation after this break? The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. It's AmericaOutloud.com, where the conversation never ends. With 24-7 streaming on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. I'm with uh, Dr. Joni Johnson. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, and this is such a interesting conversation because you got your forensic criminologist and your forensic psychologist and what we're talking about today is we're talking about allegations of sexual assault some of which are very old and how would forensic investigators go about uh, investigating these things and uh, Joni is a licensed uh, clinical psychologist she's board certified uh, teaches forensic psych and also is a uh, regular contributor to true crime. So, Joni, let, let's just continue with this fascinating conversation. Absolutely. Now, one of the things I think we have just got to talk about is this whole issue of false allegations of sexual assault, because we know that they do happen, but there's a lot of, I think, confusion about how often they happen, why they happen, and who makes them. Wow. I've got a great case that we should unpack for the audience today. And how about the Tawana Brawley case? Do you remember that case? 
I do remember that case. It was several years ago, but I mean, the facts are hard to forget. Sure. So let me just intro the case and let, let's get into it. So Tawana Brawley was a, was a very young girl that came from a town called Wappingers Fall in New York. And back in 1987, she accused six white men of raping her when she was 15 years old. Now, how they found Tawana was in a trash bag with racial slurs written on her body, and she was covered in feces. And she stated that she had been kidnapped and taken out to the woods and that she and, and she was able to identify a New York prosecutor by the name of Stephen Pagonis and at least one police officer and four other people are raping her. So uh, when they started doing the investigation, because it wasn't a late report, uh, forensic tests found no evidence of a sexual assault and no evidence supporting her story of having been left in the woods for several days. Now, she subsequently uh, was taken before the grand jury the following year in 1988, and the grand jury determined that Brawley had falsely reported the attack and May herself had pretty much created the appearance of the attack. And after that, she later confessed that there had been no sexual assault. You know, you got to feel bad for prosecutor Stephen Paganus, uh, because what happened in this highly charged uh, incident, because it, she was alleging not only a sexual assault and kidnapping, but she was a, but she was alleging a hate crime. And so, of course, people like Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, uh, another guy by the name of um, Alton uh, Maddox got involved, and they just completely had slandered uh, Mr. Paganus. And as a result, after all this was done, Paganus, that same year in 19, well, actually, that same year filed a lawsuit, but it took many years for that lawsuit to go through the courts. And in the end, in 1998, he was awarded $345,000 for defamation after successfully shooing Sharpton and Maddox. So let's talk about that case and, and the false reporting aspects, because Joni, I know you've got some inside on this as to what the motive might have been. Well, it's really interesting because the fears that a lot of us have about false allegations or false rape claims are are, are certainly understandable. And, and yet, when you look at the research, they're, for the most part, relatively rare. So there have been a couple of different studies. Um, it's amazing how little research has been done on false allegations of sexual assault. So I'll tell you what we know. The best estimate is between 2 and 8% of sexual assault allegations are false. And again, we mentioned this earlier, that's not the same as those that are unfounded. These are deliberate uh, attempts to lie, and there's oftentimes kind of a clear motive. Um, th what the motive is, though, is pretty interesting. So there was a K uh, study out of uh, L.A. in 2008, for example, um, looking at police reports of, of false claims. And what they found was that people who make false allegations, number one, are more likely to say that a stranger raped them. And they're also more likely to kind of give an over-the-top kind of account. And as you're probably seeing here, that these are kind of fitting really directly with this Brawley case. We have a teenager who apparently, from all reports, is terrified of her stepfather, who was in prison for murdering his first wife. She goes out. She's apparently partying for four days. And she really 
concocts this elaborate ruse um, to get herself off the hook, which then becomes there's all kinds of lessons to be learned here, including um, how not to investigate and certainly now how, how not to try to prosecute a case like this. Um, so we look at, you know, people who make false accusations are more likely to report within 24 hours of the incident. They're more likely to say a stranger did me, ironically, because the, the thinking for many false accusers is that I'll be believed, if I give this stereotypical rape kind of scenario, when of course we know that by by far the majority of rapes occur between acquaintances or somebody that we know. And oftentimes the details are kind of over the top. And also, which is kind of interesting, is a lot of them, and not all of them, but a lot of them are fairly easily discredited because the physical evidence, like in this case, does not corroborate that. And the person who's accusing oftentimes will have a history of making false complaints or having or, you know, lying or a pattern of criminal behavior that involves deception. And, you know, that was the case with uh, with Tawana Brawley and, and another person we're going to talk about in a little bit in a very famous case called the Duke Lacrosse case. So uh, one of the things that I found as a sexual assault investigator, especially when you're dealing with juveniles, is to, to make sure that you have a good sense of what that juvenile's relationship is with her parents. Okay, is this a supportive and nurturing environment? Is this an abusive environment? Or did the juvenile get into trouble? Okay, did the juvenile do something that the juvenile was not supposed to do? In other words, broke the home rules uh, about staying out or drinking or maybe even taking drugs. And is she presenting a story to, to kind of get herself out of trouble? Okay. Absolutely. And let me also just throw in there, Ron, and it's less likely, but it happens with adults. Um, I, I was involved in a case, gosh, over 20 years ago. And it was really interesting because this was um, a case where uh, husband and wife were together. The woman was having an affair with somebody at work who happened to be in a superior position. The husband ended up suspecting that this was going on. He followed this couple to a hotel and saw them leaving, did not confront her right then, but, but later on basically said, hey, what's going on? I saw you with your boss or senior officer um, in a hotel. And at that point, what does she do? Oh, sure. She's going to say She that. decides to save her skin. <laughs> exactly. So she says, oh, well, yeah, but I mean, it was, wasn't consensual. I was forced to do this. This was a horrible situation. And he says, well, then we need to report it. She didn't really want to report it for lots of reasons, one of which is that it wasn't true. Cool. So she gets caught between a rock in a hard place. She decides to go along with this. She doesn't want her marriage to end. She checks herself into a psychiatric hospital and she claims to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, this is kind of an interesting case because the person who'd been accused actually not only agreed to speak with me in this case, but, but wanted to and agreed to undergo psychological testing. This may have been the only time this has ever happened in my 200 plus investigations. Not that I haven't interviewed people, but he was willing to literally do psych testing, which I also did on her. And one of the things that just was clearly evident, in addition to just mounds of evidence that did not support anything that she was saying, is she just, on her psychological testing, was just clearly malingering. 
she was exaggerating. Her records didn't fit post-traumatic stress disorder, and the, the case pretty quickly fell apart. Wow, that's pretty interesting. It kind of reminds me, uh, I had a case, it was one of my very last sexual assault cases, and uh, I had the parents of, of a young gal, and she was, uh, I think she was about 16, but she actually looked older than she was. So she looked like easily she was 18, could have even passed for maybe 19 years old. And uh, she ended up flirting. How this went down is that uh, she was staying in this small beach town uh, for the summer, and she would go by this restaurant every single day. And there'd be these two good-looking waiters, and they would usually be outside the restaurant at a particular time having a cigarette break. So she began sort of a, a flirtatious, innocent flirtatious uh you know, conversation with them and go by every day and they would kind of banter and everything. And uh but she she in reality chronologically she was a juvenile both these guys were adults one guy was 18 years old one guy was 19 years old make a long story short one day she goes by there and uh you know propositions these guys to uh hey how'd you like to go out and party and they said well yeah let's go do that so they went out and they they even though they were younger they managed to get some alcohol illegally and they ended up uh driving around and then she said well wait a second uh i want to go by my house so they drive her over to her house she sneaks into the house and goes up into the house and goes to her dad's bedroom you know mom and dad's bedroom where she knew that dad kept some condoms and she grabbed a couple of condoms and she snuck back out of the house they ended up going to a motel and staying there most of the evening and then they drove her back early, early in the morning. Well, she gets busted. So when she gets busted, she said, hey, these guys took me and they, they both raped me at a hotel room. So, of course, I get the call late at night, early in the morning, and I get down there and I start the interview and I take her down to the hospital for the SART exam. And I'm listening to what she's telling the SART nurse. And it's just not kind of matching up. I have a kind of a brief interview with her, and it, she ends up kind of tripping up. I go back to the hotel. Now, we're looking at a couple of guys that are going to get arrested, and, and you know, it's going to be prison for these guys, you know, sex with the minor and, and all of this other stuff. I ended up, thank God, going back to the hotel. They hadn't cleaned the room out yet. I found the condom wrappers and was able to reconcile that with the father and what kind of condoms he kept at home. And, you know, after that, basically, the girl kind of caved in. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, what did she make up the story? Because, number one, she came in really late, and she'd been with a couple of guys. So, uh, you know, again, the forensic evidence really tells the story. And I think, you know, one of the challenges is that, you know, you're right, especially teenagers will make up these stories. And again, not often, but when we look at false reports, these are the most likely kinds of cases. And I do think these teenagers, whether that's mandated mental health treatment or some kind of diversion court, they need to have some kind of consequences for these kind of complaints because they do wreak havoc on a number of lives. Yeah. And, and, you know, but, you know, and, and this is absolutely true. But, you know, going back on the other side too, Joni, and I think you probably read some of the same research that I did, is is 90% of sexual assaults. This is a, a research pr uh, paper that was written several years ago. But I recall reading that something like 90% of sexual assaults aren't even reported. 
Well, absolutely. And it's funny because when we talk about the number of false allegations or false complaints, if you put that into that larger context, the odds are incredibly slim. Um, one of the things we haven't touched on is, you know, male sexual assault victims, which, you know, perhaps we should. And we know that statistically, a man is much more likely to be a victim of sexual assault than to be accused falsely of committing one. Well, Joni, that's really good information. Hey, let's talk about another infamous case that I alluded to before, and that's the Duke lacrosse sexual assault scandal back in 2006, where the reporting party was named Crystal Magnum, and she happened to be a stripper. Yeah, this was a really interesting and very volatile case that came out in 2006 when you had this stick lacrosse team they were on spring break and apparently decided to have a big party and as part of that requested that two strippers come out to a house that apparently was owned by the university Um, two women showed up there was some conflict or argument that ensued Um, at least one of the um strippers who later became Miss Magnum, who became later became the complainer or the, the accuser, was intoxicated. Uh, this Both strippers left. Um, there was an argument between the two strippers. She ended up calling the police to come get this person. And when they took her to the police station because she was so intoxicated, at that point, she was interviewed by a forensic nurse who asked her if she'd been sexually assaulted. And she said yes. Well, you know, what's interesting about that case is it brings in the political aspect, and I've written about this on America Out Loud uh, with regards to the uh, the hearings uh, with uh, then-Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh and, obviously, uh, Professor uh, Christine Ford uh, out of Palo Alto, California. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but it became a political event, and the investigation became political instead of forensic, and that's what happened in the Duke lacrosse case because at the time if you remember there was a district attorney who was coming up for re-election by the name of Mike Defong and even though there were questions about Magnum uh, Crystal Magnum's credibility uh, he pursued the investigation well you know not only it sounds like that there were questions but there was just clear evidence that did not support her story I mean, she's talking about being raped by multiple individuals who are not wearing a condom. And yet when they do the forensic um, investigation or examination of her, they don't find any DNA other than her boyfriend's. I mean, the, 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 right. her story that she gave just clearly was not corroborated. And there's a lot of evidence that the prosecuting attorney knew this. Ah, but that's where the ugly head is reared again. And you're exactly right. Today, we would call it a Brady violation. What is that? That means that a prosecutor or investigators, or maybe even both in conspiracy, uh, they hold back exculpatory evidence. In other words, evidence that would tend to prove that the defendants in the case were innocent rather than guilty. And what happened in that case is even though it took almost a year, the the state attorney general finally dismissed the charges against the players and declared them to be factually innocent. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And, you know, one of the points that I want to make about this particular case is that you know, looking at a complainant or a victim's sexual history to me is is difficult. And I have a, a lot of problem with using that unless it's directly relevant to the case. And you mentioned before that, you know, you can have somebody who's been a prostitute, who's been a stripper and can be legitimately a victim of sexual assault. When you have, however, somebody who has a history of making false complaints, 
about someone, particularly sexual assault complaints, that is very relevant to the credibility of that person. Right, absolutely. Hey, let's do this. Let's continue this conversation in just a minute. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest today, Dr. Joni Johnston on A Thread of Evidence. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. You know, we've been talking about the Duke lacrosse case and the reporting party who was problematic, and her name was Crystal Magnum. And Joni, I think you know a little bit more about Crystal that maybe you could share with the audience. Well, we know that Crystal Magnum had a pretty problematic and troubled history before she made these allegations in 2006. At at age 14, she had gone to the police, made a sexual harassment, I mean, a sexual assault allegation, which apparently turned out to be false, that she had withdrawn that. At one point, again, prior to 2006, she had accused a boyfriend of assaulting her with a knife or threatening her with a knife. That, too, there was no really evidence to substantiate that. So there was this history of her not telling the truth. And and even more problematic was the fact that she was not telling the truth about allegations towards somebody that she knew or that involved sexual assault. Yeah, and and she and after this whole case was disposed of, uh, she subsequently, uh, and I think it was back in uh, 2010 or 2011, uh, she she killed her boyfriend at the time. Yeah, and I actually believe that she had stabbed another boyfriend and was charged with that and something. I don't know. It never kind of went to trial or was dismissed or whatever, but she had these allegations and you're right. Then ultimately she does find another boyfriend who she ends up killing. Yeah. And she was, uh, she was sentenced to about 14 to 18 years in prison. Uh, I mean, this, this woman was a train wreck and the investigators should have determined that. And Mike Nifong should have not done what he did. Because that's not, again, what your advocacy is. It shouldn't have anything to do with you running for office or, you know, anything like that. But we see these types of things happening. And so, you know, I want that just kind of brings into play, you know, two cases that, that we just mentioned. And one I wrote about, which was Brent Kavanaugh and Professor Christine Ford. L- let's, uh, let's share some thoughts on that. What do you think about the way that that hearing was conducted? Well, I think you know, I read your wonderful article on that whole case, and I think the, just the fact that this was a political investigation and really had nothing to do with forensic pretty much sums it all. I mean, it just sums it up. 
Well, so everybody involved in this case had an opinion, and oftentimes it had nothing to do with the facts or the lack thereof. Right. And you know, with the Brent Kavanaugh case, and I think I mentioned this in the article, there were two or three other women that, that came forward, uh, but those allegations even though the the news you know jumped on them and it was front page news those allegations went away very very quickly let me ask you you know and obviously there is some level of, of, of speculation here but i would i would just more like a professional forensic opinion what do you think uh, about the allegations with respect to christine ford what uh, how do you how did you feel about that as a professional what do you think if Dr. Joni Johnston would have been the interviewer and would have been the investigator, where would you have taken that case, Joni? Well, there's a couple of things. You know, number one, as we've mentioned before, you always have to look for corroborating evidence. So you have to look for people who were at the party, who could speak to the party, who could speak to her, telling them after the fact that this had happened. And there wasn't a lot of information that came forward to substantiate her claims. You know, at the same time, I will say that when we look at how people typically respond to a traumatic event, there were some features in her account that was consistent with someone who'd had a bad experience uh, like the one she reported. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you think, uh, and not discounting anything that, that, uh, that Dr. Ford had said, do you think that she, that, that she could have been mistaken and it wasn't uh, Brent Kavanaugh? Perhaps it was someone else in a totally different circumstance? No, I don't. Okay, so you think it was you think it was at that time at that circumstance. Well, here's what I think is that when we look at the impact of trauma on memory, we know a couple of things. We know, first of all, that there are memory distortions that happen when someone's experiencing trauma, particularly for peripheral details. And so when somebody becomes fearful in a situation, particularly when they're terrified, they're in a situation where they feel like they're about to be hurt, what happens is the prefrontal cortex shuts down our kind of arousal system goes into full gear. And so we begin, we start focusing on two things, either ones that help us survive or ones that help us mentally kind of escape or physically escape. So you're talking about, you're talking about the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so it might be, I don't have a problem thinking that someone can be sexually assaulted, for example, and say, I don't remember how I got home. I don't remember exactly what time of the night that it was. It doesn't make sense to me from everything the research says that somebody would be mistaken about who it was. Okay. If you knew that, if if you knew that person, now of course we can all be mistaken in terms of a stranger and how much you have, you know. But if you know the person who's doing it, you are not going to forget that. How about the aspect of plausible possibilities? How does that work into the stress memory recall of, uh, of people that go through, you know, traumatic events? So tell me more about that. What do you mean by well, plausible sure. possibility? Okay. Well, uh, plausible possibilities is is a term that's used a little bit more in my community in, in officer-involved shootings with regards to stress memory recall. You believe something has happened, okay? Because what happens is you get a recall problem. Uh, and, and sometimes, as you know, Joni, uh, things tend to be so traumatic that it's just blocked from the memory, okay? And even when you see something, you experience it, you hear it, the eyes of the individual don't really function 
as as a video camera. So right when when you when you right. take, when you're doing a movie when you break that movie down, it's in slides, okay? And we just play yes, it really and we play it right. really fast, okay? Yeah. But in the human in the human brain, it, it doesn't work that way. There are gaps in memory. And there's gaps in memory for you know, you could probably tell us more reasons than I could, but just suffice it to say that there's gaps in memory. But what happens is that when you interview someone and they are a uh, they are a cooperative witness. And they want to remember, you're asking them to remember what happened during a stressful uh, event. They want to remember, so they reach back into their subconscious mind for that ingrained memory. But what happens is they, instead of a real memory, they pull out a memory from a TV movie they watched, another experience, maybe another one that they re that they're living, that they lived in the past and it had ingrained. But the brain is seeking for the most plausible result of that scenario and brings that out of the subconscious mind instead of the actual memory. And that's why they call it plausible possibilities. Do you follow me? Okay. Yeah, I absolutely right. follow you. And again, you know, what I can speak to is just, again, what we know about how trauma and memory work. And, and so what I mean by that is, is when a person becomes fearful. Um, what happens is, again, the attention becomes narrow. And we talk, we've heard about this t tunnel vision. Anybody who's been right. scared or been in a car accident or, as you mentioned, a combat situation, uh, they will oftentimes remember the central details of what happened. Right. But the peripheral details of what happened, you're right, are they're suggestible. They can go away. They can be distorted. So those you know, factors, um, you know, I, I'm sure you've interviewed people who've been mugged, for example, and they'll, they can describe a gun in their face and maybe they can describe every detail of that gun, but they might be, they can't tell you if the person was wearing glasses or not. Boy, you know, well, that, that that's 100% right. And we get a lot of that in officer involved shootings. Okay. Where, uh, where, for instance, I had one just really quick. It wasn't an officer involved shooting, but it was a, a, a use of force. And right next to the officer that applied force, there was a canine and a canine handler and and we had videotape of this and that dog was screaming and barking just as loud as he could and the officer did, wasn't even aware that the canine was next to him okay so yeah i get that and it can be very very frustrating for investigators who are kind of like how could you not remember that right. i mean that's important you need to remember what your assailant looks like but again it's almost like the part you know the primitive part of our brain takes over and is completely focused on survival at that point and so in the situation you're talking about, um, or I was talking about, okay, the person might be able to describe the, the gun in detail. But if you ask that person 10 years later or 20 years later, when you were mugged, was it a knife or a gun? That's not going to get distorted. The right. person's not going to kind of go, huh, was it a knife? They're going to go, it was a gun. <laughs> right. so. um, some of the other details might become foggier over time. Um, so again, when you look at the, the, the Christine Blasey Ford uh, situation and the Brett Kavanaugh situation. As an investigator, was that situation perhaps unfounded? I didn't see that enough evidence was gathered in that right. situation. There wasn't enough corroborating evidence. So I could clearly understand. I, as an investigator, could not conclude this was a false allegation. Okay. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about this new case that that's all over the airwaves, and that is Lieutenant Governor of Virginia Justin Fairfax. So we have 
this first case that happened back in, I think it was 2006, during the Democratic Convention back there, uh, where a uh, woman, uh, was her name Vanessa? Vanessa Tyson, Thank a you. professor. Okay. Yes, professor. And, um, and I think it... I think it might have been 2004. I'm not completely sure. You're but probably I, right. My ears are probably off. <laughs> but but uh, It's not particularly important to this scenario. No, it's but not it, really. I, uh, I, I think the fact pattern is they're both working for the Democratic Convention at the time. And they, uh, I guess, uh, Mr. Fairfax said, hey, I need to get some documents up in the room. And by the way, this is according to uh, Ms. Tyson, Dr. Tyson. And they went up to the room and then all of a sudden... Uh, there was some kissing that took place. I think she admits that uh, she kissed him back. Then they went in the room. And then as she now states that there was a, a sexual assault that took place in that room that she's now reporting. But now there's a second woman that has come forward. So, you know, what are your, what is your take on that, on how that case should be investigated? It's an interesting case in a lot of respects. So, yeah, she does say that the, the kissing initially was consensual. And then at some point, pretty quickly, she says he begins putting, uh, grabbing her by the back of the head Correct. and basically forced her to have oral sex. Correct. And that she never reported this, although um, apparently she did contact the Washington Post over a year ago to say, hey, here's a person who's about to be lieutenant governor. And I'm just concerned because this is my history with him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he came out, as you've already mentioned, denied this. And then a couple of days ago, another woman came out and basically said, I was in college with this person and he was, I think, a senior. I was a freshman or sophomore. He was a powerful person on campus, and he raped me, basically. Um, we were friends, friendly. We weren't in a romantic relationship. We hadn't dated or anything, um, and we kind of got together, and, and he raped me. And again, this person never reported to the police. Um, she, I'm not sure yet if she's told, you know, friends of hers or family at the time, but they have, her attorney has at least released, released an email uh, in from 2016 when she got some kind of, I guess, promotion for the Democratic Convention about Justin Fairfax and his rise to power. And she sent an email saying, please don't send me anything about this person in 2016. I mean, this was back in 2016. Right, right. In 2004, he raped me. Wow. How would you go about putting that investigation together? Because uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax has now stated uh, that he wants the FBI to investigate th these two cases. What, what's your take? Well, I think they should be investigated. And the fact that he's calling for an investigation, great. Um, and again, we would do it the same way we would do any other investigation. We would interview each particular um, witness. We would look, ask who we should talk to, what that person would have to offer. We would also interview him, give him the same opportunity. We would look for any kind of corroborating evidence. Did she get send other emails? Were there text messages? And we have to put the totality of the circumstances together. So one of the things I think is important when we talk about these cases that happened 20 years ago is it doesn't make them credible, Ron, but it doesn't discount them either. Right. And that's the, the I think the hard thing is, you know, I've heard people on social media say, yes, Christine Blasey Ford said she was raped 30 minutes or, or assaulted 30 years ago. I was assaulted 30 years ago. Therefore, it must be true. Well, no. Right. 
That doesn't mean it's true, but it doesn't mean it's not true either. We have to begin the investigation, look for evidence, look for corroboration, and then make a a determination, which, as you know, is always objective and subjective when we're talking about credibility. No, it's absolutely correct. You took the, the words out of my mouth. Hey, we've got just a couple of minutes left, Joni. How about a couple of tips for forensic investigators, sexual assault investigators? What, you know, if you could just synopsize and maybe just mention two or three things that you think is paramount for them to keep in mind when they're conducting sexual assault investigations, what would you tell them? A couple of things, you know, one, again, understanding the victim perpetrator dynamics, uh, which is, again, the kind of the lack of, of control and the sense of kind of disconnection. It's really important to approach that person with empathy. And, and sometimes there's a confusion about empathy versus believing. And you can certainly be empathic and be objective with that person. I also think it's really important to let that person tell the story in their own words. Um, I've heard, you know, people say, you know, I went to report and this attorney, I mean, this police officer said, no, I need to hear it from beginning to end. And as you've already talked about, that isn't how memory works when we're talking about trauma. So if a person is reporting kind of an island of memory, I remember this person did this. Tell me more about that. Helping that person just continue to talk, asking you know, open questions versus close. Did he do this? What were you wearing? What was, how much did you have to drink? Letting that person um, speak. And oftentimes individuals who've been traumatized will have sensory memory. So having that person, you know, what did you, what do you remember smelling? What do you remember seeing? What did you feel? What was going on? So the, Approaching that person with compassion, withholding judgment until the facts are gathered. Also, and this is kind of a tough one, we need to all be aware of what our assumptions are about sexual assault. Um, there, you know, it wasn't too long ago that there were a lot of beliefs that, you know, a person asked for it by, depending on what she was wearing. Um, if a person's not crying and hysterical, again, they're not credible. I've heard the other part of it. You know, if the person um, was sobbing, I think they were putting on a big act. It was, they were too emotional. So we need to really check and understand what our attitudes are going in and to realize those attitudes can influence how we interview that person and how we interpret those responses. And also, again, as you mentioned, giving that person as much control as we can, such as interviewing the person for 30 minutes for an hour and then rescheduling the interview to allow the person to get some sleep and coming back because memories do consolidate over time. No, I absolutely agree with you. Boy, those are some great tips and uh, the ones that I would strongly advise any of our listeners that are involved in forensic investigations, especially sexual assault investigations, to keep in mind. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest today, Dr. Joni Johnston, a licensed clinical psychologist and private investigator on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.